If you do have a Bible, now's the time when we get to dig into the Word of God. Um, We have been in the book of Genesis, and so we are going to turn there again. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Genesis 18. Um, Our our series we've been walking through over the next little while uh, has been uh, all about Abraham. Uh, It's a series we've entitled Life and Faith because we're really kind of walking with Abraham through the journey of faith that he is taking as God calls him and leads him and and really promises great things to all of humanity uh, through him. So, uh, by, by this chapter, chapter 18, uh, we are going to notice um, maybe something that we haven't yet before. Uh, certainly, we've seen that Abraham is on a journey of faith. Uh, he's been called, he's, he's responded, he's followed God. But, but here in this chapter, we get uh, more of a sense that this is, this is also a relationship of faith that is developing between Abraham and God. Uh, God spoke to Abraham. God appeared to him, God, God led him to the land of promise, and God intervened when Abraham got into trouble. There's a relational aspect to all of those things. Now this idea that, that Abraham would have had sort of a relationship with God would have been very uh, unfamiliar for the people of, of the day. Uh, in that time, in particular, uh, gods were not beings that you had a relationship with. Uh, they, they were beings that you served. Your job was to serve whatever God you worship, God of the moon, God of the sun. Uh, your job was to obey them, to, to sacrifice to them in the hopes that they might give you some sort of favor, some, some sort of gift. But here we see something that is altogether, altogether different. Uh, for most of the people, for Abraham himself, who was a, a worshiper of the moon until this time, he would not have expected any of the gods to really care for him to have a personal relationship, and yet that's what we see beginning uh, to be developed. In fact, even today, the whole idea of religious faith, by and large, is, is generally thought of, I think, as an impersonal thing. Faith is, is a set of beliefs that you adhere to. Maybe it's some religious practices that you engage in. But the idea of a God who would really care for you is, is very um, unfamiliar, even in our day. But what we see here in our text, we're going to see is that the God of the Bible is not like other gods. And the faith of the Bible is not like other faiths. And and the amazing thing that we see uh, in our passage is something that is very simple and yet very profound. Something inherently relational. And that is that, that God visits Abraham. God comes over for dinner. Just as a friend would. And so we see here in our text that the heart of Christian faith is really one of relationship even one of friendship. So with that kind of framework in mind, I'm going to read through our our entire text, uh, looking at this interaction between God and Abraham, and then we're going to see what God has for us this morning. So I'm going to begin uh, verse 1 of chapter 18, and it says this, And the Lord appeared to him, that is Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I had found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent and Sarah and said, quick, Three seahs of fine flour, knead it, and make cakes. 
And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set them before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I, sh- I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. That's God's word to us this morning. Uh, let's, uh, let's begin in prayer. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for this, uh, this interchange, Lord, where you give us a window into your, your heart for Abraham and really your heart for all of us. Uh, God, I pray that uh, we would have open minds, open ears, and open hearts to hear what you have to say. And God, that in this, we would better understand you and better understand uh, the potential we have for a genuine relationship with you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to tackle this text in two sections, uh, kind of verses 1 to 8 and then 9 to 15. And uh, both uh, sections will have one point. We have two points for our sermon today, and both have to do with friendship. And so this is our first point. Uh, God wants to be your friend. God wants to be your friend. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Matt, that point would look very good if it was stitched on a pillow or maybe written in glitter glue on a Sunday school craft. Um, that, that point, Matt, doesn't, it doesn't seem to have a lot of weight to it. It seems sort of um, superficial, right? God wants, God wants to be your, your friend. I mean, if you're a guest here with us, uh, you, you may very well be thinking, you know, this is this is kind of my problem with church. It's that there are these statements, these kind of religious platitudes that are said that don't really have a lot of meaning to them. It sounds good, sounds quaint, but what could this possibly mean? That God wants to be buddies with us? God wants to be pals with us? I mean, at least I could have had some theological language, right? God wants to be our our redeemer, or our savior, or our justifier, something with a little bit of, of meat to it. And, and if you're thinking these things, thank you for being honest. Thank you for not shouting them out, these criticisms you have. Um, I actually kind of agree with you that this kind of language does tend to, to leave us wanting, except for one thing, and that is that um, this very wording we find in the Bible. We, we find a number of times that God expresses his relationship. He talks about his relationship with Abraham in particular and uses the word friend. It's, it's three times, Second Chronicles 20, Isaiah 41, James 2. Here are a couple of them. God says, uh, but you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. That, that's how God refers to Abraham. He, he's my friend. James 2.23, very simply, and Abraham was called a friend of God. So this is part of the reason that we we think of Abraham as the father of faith, because he had this very close relationship with with God. I mean, we we see it here in the text. This is a very friend-like thing to do. You go over to your friend's house for dinner. You sit down, you have some food, you talk. This is a very intimate, relational sort of thing. 
it's, it's a little tough for us to fully appreciate the magnitude of this encounter. Because it does seem like a very everyday thing. I mean, Abraham, he's having a nap. That's what you would do in the heat of the day. Everyone sort of in the household would be snoozing. And he wakes up and he sees these visitors arrive. And so he does what every good uh, Eastern head of the family would do. He springs into action, right? In, in hospitality, he invites them in. Come, right? He gets a meal together really quick. He wakes everyone up. There's people here. We have to, this is what you would always do. To any travelers, you would be a good host. And so we see, we see Abraham doing that. And it's, it's not very clear. Like at first, he doesn't really know who these guys are. He's just doing this because that's what you would, that's what you would do. But the, the text makes it very clear for us that this is actually God. Uh, the wording of the text is very clear. In the first verse, uh, we see this, and the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. That, if you have a Bible, you'll see that same wording. When, when it's Lord in all caps, that is a translation of the, the name of God, Yahweh. So as, as Moses is writing this, the one who wrote uh, Genesis, he's making very clear this is God. This is God in, in the flesh. Now, Abraham doesn't know it right away, but you'll notice he's, there's something about these, these strangers that he really wants, um, he shows a lot of respect uh, in the way that he approaches them. He bows low to the ground. That, that was more than you would normally do. And he even calls them Lord, not, not L-O-R-D, all caps, but still a sign of great respect. And the meal he makes for them is way more than he should have done. I mean, the amount of food that they made was like for a huge feast, and there was just three of them. So Clearly, Abraham has some sense that there's something special about them. But the, the penny really would have dropped uh, when, when God speaks. Because God uh, asks Abraham about his wife, Sarah. But he doesn't say Sarai, which was her old name. If, if you know the story, God actually changed their name from Abram to Abraham, from Sarai to Sarah. But back in those days, you, she couldn't update her like Facebook. She couldn't tell everyone, hey, I've got a new name, right? This is what, now you call me this. No one knew about it. So the fact that this, this being, this stranger knew her new name, that was a clear sign that, that this was in fact God himself. And so what we have here is, is God coming in human form, a, a precursor to the Christmas story, to the incarnation. This is a moment of, of divine condescension, the most powerful being in the universe coming to earth to have some flatbread, to have some shish kebabs, to have some water, and to just be with a being that he created. This is amazing. This should blow our minds in all sorts of ways, but think of it just from a, from a position of power point of view. I mean, in human culture, those who are in high positions of power generally have difficulty relating to those beneath them. There's not always a lot of uh, enthusiasm to connect with those who are far below them. I mean, this is why through all of human history, there have been so many uh, revolutions and uprisings. Because there are kings or queens or emperors or dictators, someone in charge, and with no interest in those people that they are supposed to be leading. And so eventually, the people, they, they, they're fed up. They're fed up with the policies and the laws and the decrees, the abuse, and so they, they have some sort of uprising because there's this gap between those in power and those who have none of it, and to bridge that gap is, is very rare. Even for, even for us, we had a monarchy, we sort of do still, the British monarchy, we're, we're a colony, you knew that, right? Um, even for the Brits, now they didn't have a revolution like France, but there was, there was always this distance between Buckingham Palace and the rest of the British people. 
And in fact, it's an interesting story. There was a man who, in the 1950s, he, he finally kind of called out the royal family on this. Uh, this man, his name was John Grigg. Uh, you see him there, very very British-looking man. Why do they always look like that? Anyway, so he's very serious, very, very pensive, but he was a journalist, and he, would, he began to write a number of articles criticizing the royal family, really criticizing them for their snobbery. Uh, he, he really said that they were far too upper class, that when Queen Elizabeth would give her speeches, that, that it was really tone deaf. It was very hollow. Her language, her, she had no connection with the common people. Now, this was a huge controversy, the British people, they, they loved their, their monarchy. No one had ever criticized the queen like this before. So there was a huge uproar. They brought John Grigg on, on television and asked him to explain himself. Like, why are you bad-melting the queen? And he said, look, I, I love the monarchy. I think they're important. They're such an important uh, fixture in our culture. But, but he wanted to, to address some issues to, to help them and make them better. And it really resonated with a lot of the British people. Of course, Buckingham Palace... Uh, responded as only they can with cold indifference. No response, no even acknowledgement that this was out there. But eventually, they actually invited John Grigg to the palace. And they asked him for some, some of his suggestions. A- and one of his suggestions was simply this. He suggested that it would be a good thing for the royal family to actually interact with the British people. <laughs> it was revolutionary. They had never thought of it before. They, the, the queen, Prince Philip, the queen mother, they had never, it never occurred to them that it might be a good thing to have some people over for tea that were not of the aristocracy. And in fact, this is what they started to do. And, and in, in the decades to come, uh, those from the royal family would say that John Grigg was, was one of the ones who really helped the royal family. Why did they need help? Because those in positions of power generally have a very difficult time bridging the gap to reach down and connect with those beneath them. This is always the way it has been in human culture. But, but here's the thing. It has never been this way with God. Despite the fact that, that God is supreme, God is higher than anyone else in a position of authority, God has always reached down to connect with those whom he created. There is a gap that exists between God and man, but it is not because of pride or power or prestige on God's part. We are actually the ones that turned away from him. The reason there's a gap between us and God is because of our actions, because of our pride. I mean, think back to to the beginning in Genesis. If you know the creation story, you know that when, when human beings were created, we had a perfect relationship with God. That we would walk about in the garden, we would talk with him, we would talk with each other. Everything was, was perfect, but it didn't last because we made some choices. Because Adam and Eve, they, they began to think that they knew better than God. They, they began to not trust his word. And, and from the outside looking in, if, if you've heard, you've heard the, the story of the forbidden fruit, you may have thought to yourself, like, that, that seems like a bit of an overreaction. Like if all they did was eat a, a pear or a kumquat or whatever it was that was forbidden, like thou shalt not eat, and then they ate that fruit, like why would that ruin everything? Why was that such a big deal? It seems trivial, but in fact, in their very hearts is the essence of sin, which is betrayal, which is disobedience. And the effect of that action was that all of a sudden there was a gulf that emerged between God and man. And it was filled with broken promises, broken morality, and broken relationship. 
So now it was no longer possible for us to be close with God because God did the only thing that he, that he could do. He cast us out in justice, saying you are no longer, you cannot be closer to me because you have turned away. This is, look, this is what betrayal does. We know this. In our relationships, when there's betrayal, intimacy, friendship, close relationship is, is impossible. There's a rift that develops. And this is what happened between human beings and God. Now, God didn't leave us to our own devices. As you look through the pages of Genesis, you'll see that he was, he was still involved in human history. I mean, he was there with Cain and Abel and with Noah and with all the, the trouble that was going on as humanity persisted in their sin. But, but in all of that activity, God was still active, but, but there's a question that remained. I'm not sure that anyone was actually asking the question, but if you read through Genesis, a question that I think you might might ask, um, honestly, is this. God was involved in human history, but did he still want to be our friend? Like, was he interested in still having a relationship with us? Was there any way for us to be close to him again? Was there some way of reconciling this, this friendship that was broken? Now, there was no reason for him to do this. Very clearly, we were the ones who were at fault, we're the ones who turned our back. We're the ones who continue to trust in ourselves rather than God. There is no reason for God to extend the hand of, of friendship. But the amazing thing is that he did. Th- that he did for, for no value, no wonderful thing about us because of his, his love for us. Because of his desire to show the universe the depth of his grace and his mercy and his love, he reached out he began to restore this relationship. He really made the first move and in that, a relationship began to develop again. You see it kind of in our text. You see this dynamic between, between God and human beings. Uh, here's verses four and five. Um, this is Abraham speaking. He says, let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. That's why this interaction is happening. Because God, God bridged the gap. God is the one who came to see his servant. He is the one who humbled himself, took on the form of a man, and came to connect with Abraham. God is the one who extended a hand of friendship even after the greatest of betrayals. Now, I'm not sure if you've had the the pleasure of the reconciliation of a relationship, of maybe a friendship in your life, but but it's a beautiful thing. For me, there's a friend uh, I have now that for a good period of time, sadly, we we were estranged. And, and it was mostly to do with me. There was, there was a disagreement. There was, um, there was some words that were spoken. That there was a brokenness of that relationship. And we could have, we could have made it work, but, but I kind of turned my back. And I, I let things be. I let things lie for years. We, we weren't in each other's lives anymore. But after a time, God stirred things up in my heart in the heart of the people in our lives, and, and we came to a place where we were sitting across the table from each other again. And God, God brought reconciliation and restoration, and it, and it filled my heart with, with joy to know that God can do that. But, but here's the thing. For me to reconcile with this friend of mine, we couldn't just start to hang out together. I mean, friendship is something where you, where you hang out together, but what was really needed before we could rebuild our friendship was was forgiveness. I needed to admit 
the wrongs that were there and asked for forgiveness. And when that happened, the relationship was restored. Now, now we still had work to do, but the forgiveness was necessary. Here in this text, we have, we have like a foreshadow of God's, God's heart towards us is one of friendship. God wants to be our friend, but it actually points forward to an activity where the, the friendship could really be restored. And that is, of course, in the person of Christ. Because with Jesus, uh, Jesus came into the world also. He took on flesh. He came eating and drinking and befriending sinners. But all the while that he came, he was there with a mindset towards the work that needed to be done. The work on the cross. Because on the cross is where he was able to bring about the forgiveness between God and man. Because the gulf that kept us apart was filled with sin. And yet, yet Jesus, in his sacrifice of himself, he took the consequences of sin upon himself. And in that moment, as we believe in that, we are reconciled with God. And so God wants to be our friend. He knew that we could not fix things on our own, and he reached out even though he was the wronged party. And in the gospel, the good news of Jesus, we have, we have the answer. We, we have the, the friendship that, that in our heart of hearts we've been longing for. Uh, just look here in, in the book of John. This is Jesus uh, having a meal again with his friends, with his disciples. And look how he talks about his relationship with humanity. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. The depth of this friendship is nothing new. We see all the way back in Genesis, here in his interaction with Abraham, that, that God was always reaching out to us, bridging the gap of sin, looking to reestablish his, his friendship in spite of us, in spite of our fickleness, in spite of our inconsistency, our betrayal, regardless of all of that, God said, I, I still want to be friends with you. And so, and so my question to you, it, to wrap up this first section, is a question that, that may seem trivial, but I'm hoping by this point you, you feel its weight. And the question is simply this. Is God your friend? Do you know God in this way? Do you have faith in Jesus, that, that in his work on the cross, he reestablished the friendship that all humanity once had with God. And if God is your friend, are you pursuing him in friendship? Like, like as a friend would. For me and my friend, as, as we were reconciled, we couldn't just start where we left off. We weren't, the rhythms of life, we weren't in each other's lives anymore. We, we had to, and we still have to kind of work at it because it, it wasn't there anymore. So we needed to pursue each other. I needed to pursue him and, and find ways for us to connect again, and it's the same with us and God. He wants to be our friend, and, and part of our friendship is that we make the effort. I mean, it's, it's on him. By the grace of God, the friendship is reestablished, but to the extent that we would grow in friendship with God, we, we need to spend time with God in his word, and prayer, so that we might grow in this friendship, grow in this, in this faith relationship. So firstly, we see here that, that God does really want to be our friend. But secondly, we're going to see that God is the very best kind of friend. Because there's different kinds of friends. There's people that we call friends, but they, they don't actually you know, treat us 
in the very best way. Um, there's another friend of mine who had a, a sister, has a sister. And as she grew up in her teen years, um, she got into a lot of trouble. And by trouble, I mean, you know, drugs, alcohol, um, skipping school, just a whole bunch of things that she would regret later on in life. But during that time, she had a very, very good friend. And the thing about this very, very good friend is that this friend supported her regardless of the decision she made. All the bad decisions that she made, her friend was right there and she was never judging, never criticizing, never saying anything untoward about what her, her friend was doing. She felt like a really good friend. But as you look back on that kind of relationship, you have to ask yourself, is, is that really what a good friend does? Does a friend allow us just to do whatever we want with our lives and always encourage us, always gives us smiley face emojis on our phone, everything's going great, I love you, I'm for you. If a friend really loves you, there are going to be times where there's, there's points of confrontation. And that's what we see in the rest of our text here. This is what God does with, with Sarah. Let's look again at the, the last part here, verses 9 and 10. They said to him, where is Sarah your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now, this is great news. They have been waiting for a long time for a child, for, for probably 25 years since God first told them you're going to have a child. You would think that for Sarah, this would, be, oh, this would be fantastic. She would respond with elation and joy. But of course, that's not how she responds. This is how she responds. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did, not, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. But he said, no, you did laugh. So Sarah laughs at the promises of God. Not like, a, this, this is amazing laugh. It's a, this is, this is never going to happen kind of laugh. It's not a good laugh. Um, Abraham also laughed, just to make sure we're clear, the chapter previous, when God told him this, Abram, he also laughed, said, this, this is never going to happen. This is ridiculous. Now, obviously, this is the wrong reaction. We, we know this from a distance. It's very clear, but, but you have to imagine where Sarah was in her life. I mean, just think, she's 90-something she's years old by this point. She has lived a long time, and all of that time, she has been hoping for a child. She, she would have begun hoping for a child in her teens, which is when they would have got married. And she would have looked around to see the, the large families that they had back then, and all the while, she was hoping that she would have a child. Year after year, she was excited about the prospect of having a son or a daughter or multiple sons or daughters. She would look around and see all the ladies that are part of her family in, in the village, and, and her heart would yearn for that. And this happened for decades through her 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. And then, in her 70s, her, her husband was called by God. After all that time, to leave their home and to go to a new land and to start a family. I mean, she, just imagine when, when Abraham came and told her, here's what God told me. We're leaving this place. I mean, that would have been difficult, but, 
but he said that through me, there's going to be a great nation, which means children. And so even though it was hard, she, she followed her husband. She followed God. They left the land of Ur. They found their way to the promised land. But when they got there, there was no children. Many more years went by without children. God would come and reiterate his promise and show the stars in the sky and say, look, that's, that's what I'm going to do through you. But still, there were no children. She got frustrated. Her heart got harder. She was so frustrated that in chapter 16, as, as we heard, she, she said to her husband, look, maybe you should have my maidservant. Maybe that's how we're going to have children. She, she, was, she was so brokenhearted. But of course, that didn't make things better. That wasn't... That wasn't what God had intended. And then after all that hoping, finally her, her body began to change. Her cycle slowed down. It became irregular. She could feel the difference, but, but probably she tried to ignore it. Right? I mean, you, you might miss a month here or there. I mean, they're in the desert. So who knows if it's a hot flash or if it's just the heat, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't know, right? She's, I don't, but eventually, after... Can we joke about menopause? We can. Um, <clears throat> but eventually, after a period of years, it was very, very clear to her. Her body had shut down. She was no longer able to produce a child. Whatever promises God had made, they, they were not going to come to pass. We see this in the text itself. Verse 11 says, The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So after all of that, after all those ups and downs and the praying and the dreaming, when, when God tells her that you are going to have a child next year, she laughs. And I think she laughs because if she didn't laugh, she, she probably would have cried. She was, so, she was so tired of being disappointed, so tired of, of hoping. And my guess is that for many of us in this room, we, we've been through seasons like this where, where we've been hoping. We've been hoping in God. We've We've been on our knees, we've been praying, we've been asking God for, for a good thing, for, for something that he, he promises to care for us in his word, and, and month after month, year after year, it, it doesn't happen. And so eventually, we, we reject the whole idea of hope, because hope means that we could be disappointed again, and Sarah doesn't want that. So I think we can understand why Sarah laughed. I think we can understand why she considered the idea that she might receive some sort of pleasure at this stage of her life just utterly ridiculous. That's not the question I think that this text is, is prompting us to ask. We know why Sarah laughed. I think the question we should be asking is, why did God call her out on it? Like God knew everything that had happened in her life. God knew all that she had endured. He, he knew the length of time and the ups and downs. If God was going to be a good friend, wouldn't he just allow her to have this? I mean, she didn't, she didn't even say it out loud. This was in her head or under her breath. No one heard her laughing at the promise of God. Why didn't God just, just let her deal with this in her own way? Recognizing she, she's brokenhearted. It's been so tough. Just allow her to kind of wallow for a moment. But God doesn't do that. He calls her out in front of everyone. And even when she kind of tries to deny it, it, clearly just, you know, being defensive, God, God doubles down. He says, no, no, you, you did laugh. I mean, is, is that what a good friend would do in that situation? 
The answer is yes. The answer is that, that this is the most loving thing that God can do in the situation. Because God doesn't just want to be our friend, he wants to be the very best kind of friend. And the best kind of friend is one that doesn't let us persist in attitudes and actions that are self-destructive. The best kind of friend will confront us about our sin and call us to greater levels of faith, not because it, it feels good in the moment, not because people love to hear it, but because it's best for us. This is what good friends always do. I mean, that friend that I told you about way back in the early days of our friendship, he, he was that kind of friend. He still is that kind of friend for me. Uh, there, was, there were times when he would talk to me about things that I did not want to hear. Uh, before, before dawn, there was a relationship I was in which was not a healthy relationship. One with all sorts of red flags that I, I didn't see or didn't want to see. He was the one who came and talked to me and, and asked me some questions about it, pushed me on it. Not because I wanted to hear it, but because he loved me. Because that's, that's what a friend does. You're willing to offend for the moment because you want to help your friend to grow in every good way, to turn and, and be faithful, to turn away from things that will destroy us. That's what God is doing here. See, even though we can understand Sarah's frame of mind, the words that she spoke, the attitude of her heart, the, the truth is that it was full of sin. It was self-destructive because it was rooted in a disbelief in the word of God. And that's what caused all the problem in the first place. When Adam and Eve disbelieved God's word, that's when trouble started. That's when a gap developed. So here God is saying, don't, don't disbelieve. And this is what it means for him to be a good friend. And he still acts this way. That's the, that's the blessing of God. Not just that he brings forgiveness and a reconciliation of our friendship, but that his commitment to us, for those who believe, is that he is, he is going to persist in growing us in every good way. There's, there's the salvation that comes from God, but the growth is called the sanctification of God. And we see it again and again that God is going to confront us in our sin because he loves us, because he wants us to grow. Now here's one, um, one time where it's mentioned, 2 Corinthians 3.18, the Apostle Paul talking to brothers and sisters who are Christians, he says, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And what he's saying is that as, as we behold the glories of God, that we will be transformed into his image, which is the very best thing for us. Because that's what was always intended from the beginning. God made us in his image. And because of sin, it's been corrupted and, and twisted and, and we get off track. We, we destroy ourselves when we try to follow our own ways. But here God says, I am not only going to bring you into friendship with me again, I'm going to make sure that you grow in every good way. And in fact, that's, you see God's heart towards Sarah in the text. Because he doesn't just call her out, he asks her a question. A question that is, that is filled with heartfelt love. One that is rooted in his, his power. God says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Sarah, the things that are, that are weighing you down is because you're looking at the impossibility of having a child. But, but Sarah, take your eyes off your circumstances and put them on me. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I mean, this is the, this is the nature of faith. As we keep our eyes on the things in our life that we can't change, our faith will always falter. It will always waver. But as we take our eyes and we put them on the, the character and the power of God, we will always find certainty and comfort. 
This is the, the blessing of faith. This is what it means to, to actually walk in faith. That we fill our minds with Christ, with God himself, the author of our faith, the perfecter of our faith. So in light of, in light of this, in light of this, this difficult, this confrontational, but very loving activity of God, here's my, my second question for us. And it's this. What do you doubt God for in your life? I don't mean, where are you frustrated because God hasn't followed your plan for your life? Because he's not going to do that. Because <laughs> he's a good friend. And he knows if, if he does that, you're going to wreck everything. Um, so it's, it's not that kind of frustration. What I mean is, where are there promises that you see from God in scripture to his, to his children? And, and you doubt God for those things to come to pass. Like, are there, are there people in your life whose hearts are so hard that you think that they will never, ever soften? Are there doubts in your own heart that you think you will never be able to overcome? Are, are there friends or family members that you think are just too lost? They will never say yes to Jesus. They will never come to saving faith. It's too hard. It's too difficult. Are there sins in your life that are, are too big that you think you will never be able to overcome them? Or too horrible that you think God will never really be able to forgive you? Are there sorrows in your heart that are so deep you think God will never really be able to comfort them? I ask you, is anything too hard for the Lord? Are any of those things too hard for God? I mean, you know what we're talking about, right? This is the God who, he created everything. He, he flung stars into the sky simply by speaking them. He made your entire body. All the billions and trillions of synapses that, that we are just beginning to understand, he did that with a word. He wired into your very cells a DNA strand, the double helix, which is, is beautiful and fantastic and packed with information, so much so that at the point of conception, there is all the information necessary to grow an entire human being. I mean, that's amazing. Just think of the variety of life on the planet, all the things that God conceived in his own mind and through his power brought to bear. Just, just think, this is exciting for me, maybe not for you, but just think of, think of a mango. <laughs> Have you ever tasted anything more delicious than a mango? <laughs> think of what it took for God to create such a thing and give us taste receptors so that when we taste it, we think, I want, I want that in everything. I want to dry it. I want to cover it with chocolate, put it in my smoothies. This is how, who made this? God made it. And he just, it was one of the things he made that day. All the fruit, all the variety of animals, everything. And just think about what he means when he says that the kingdom of heaven is coming. See, when Jesus came to earth, he was telling everyone, look, here's what's coming. The kingdom of God is a place where those people who can't see, now they can see. Those people who can't walk from birth, now they walk. Those people who've been afflicted by, by demons, they are set free, they are restored. He brings healing and restoration to all of our relationships. And more than that, people who are dead, they, they come back to life because God speaks it. And the promise for everyone who believes is that you will have life eternal. This is God. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? In your life, in my life, there are hard things. There are things that will bring us to our knees, but... But the constant refrain of scripture is, is we have a God who is able. More than that, we have a God who is, who is willing, a friend, one who has committed himself in, in every way to, to grow us in godliness. 
Now, the end of this story is actually not found in Genesis. We have to jump forward to Hebrews to see what the effect of this conversation with God had on Sarah's life. And here's what it says in Hebrews 11.11. It says, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Isn't that beautiful? That, that in that moment of rebuke, there was good work that was done in Sarah's heart. That she came to the point of faith. More than that, she put in herself in a position where she hoped again. Where she opened up her heart towards God again. Why? Because God was her friend. Because she recognized in him one who not just not just wanted to bring good things about in her life, but had the power to do it. And in that, there was great blessing for all of humanity because, of course, the promised offspring came through her. And in that, for us, in in this text, we have a reminder of how much God loves us, of his desire not just to be our friend, but to be the very best kind of friend. And so my my hope for you today, if if you already know God as as friend and Savior and Lord, that you would go from this place with just your heart filled with the character of God. And that if you're here with us this morning and and you wouldn't say that you've really ever thought of God in that way, my, my hope is that there's been some stirrings, maybe some questions. We would love to talk to you more about what it what it means to come to saving faith, to be able to live your life knowing that God is your friend, the God of the universe, the God of your salvation and the God of your future hope and glory. So with this in mind, let's, let's pray. Lord God, we are thankful for who you are. God, we are thankful that, that when you ask these rhetorical questions, we know, we know the answer is evident because of all that you've done. Because God, that you came and, and you took on flesh and you lived the life that we could never live and then went to the cross to take on the consequences of sin because, because of your desire to be friends with us to bring us back into relationship and ultimately because of your desire to, to glorify yourself, to show how wonderful you are and how, how wonderful it is to hope fully in you. I pray, God, for us here. I pray, Lord, that, that we would have had a better understanding now of, of who you are and who we are as your, as your children, Lord, if we have faith. And God, for those who are, who are just wondering about faith and, and what it means to really follow you, God, I pray that... Um, that there would be some good questions asked and hopefully some good answers given. And Lord, that in that, you would have your way in our life. And Lord, that we would be able to call you uh, friend and Savior and Lord. I, I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.